I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I create today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I would love it if you read it as if you're the hero of your own story and I'm just telling you of the epic kind of mythic journey that you're going to go on in this lifetime and these are spiritual forces you can choose to dance with but you don't have to nothing in this book is predictive everything about this book is just kind of like these are things you could co-conspire with in this lifetime to make your journey really spiritually aligned no sweat if you don't want to do that you can ignore these guys and tell them to f off right and so that's kind of my hope is just remembering like we get so bogged down in the minutia of our lives and we're like, God, I just work in tech or God, I just work a sales job. And like my, you know, I just don't think my life's interesting. And I hope the book reminds you that like you're a spiritual person and thus your life is incredibly interesting. And just like you and I were just talking about the beginning, like I hope it makes you notice some of these spiritual forces that might be around you all the time, but you might be too busy to engage with or to have conversations with. Dearest you, if you follow Nadine Jane Astrology on Instagram, you might have noticed that she went away for a while. Her absence was very felt on my feed, and I thought about her often. I wondered if she was okay, and I hope she'd be back creating her signature style of intuitive, soft, and highly emotional astrology content. So you can imagine the smile on my face when I was presented with the opportunity to sit down with Nadine once again, three years after our first honest conversation. She's such a joy to interview and to talk to, but I was also just really curious to ask her about the last couple of years. Where has she been? Why did she take a break? What did she do during that break? And importantly, how did it all feel? As you'll soon learn, our favorite New York City astrologer, who is actually currently residing in Maine, experienced the very thing that she's guided many of us through, her Saturn return. For Nadine, this significant astrological event brought with it something unexpected. It turned out the lights on her love affair with astrology and as someone who channels, what that meant was that she lost her signal. Nadine and I explore what that was like, the other areas of growth her Saturn return brought on, how it impacted the book that she'd signed on to write and has since published. It is an 800-page masterpiece called Magic Days her evolved relationship with astrology and also her body, and also her cosmic weather report for this year. If you've been thinking about making a big and brave decision, you're going to love what she has to say about 2023. Here's beautiful Nadine Jane and I for Offline. Now it's been three years so crazy. since we last 
spoke. I've had a whole baby. I have a whole child. Oh my God, congratulations. Yeah. Can I know the so birthday? little Betty, her name is. Beautiful. Yes, she's January 21, 2021. So Aquarius. She's Aquarius. Oh. And she's an Aries moon. Uh-huh. Beautiful. And she's a Scorpio rising. Cool. What a dynamic <sighs> baby. Wow, that's so interesting. She's born in 2021, so she has Saturn conjunct her son. Cool. Beautiful. I feel like, you know, for me, Cancer Sun, Cancer Moon, Aquarius Rising, she's kind she's a real, she's very evolutionary for me. Do you know what Absolutely. I mean? I didn't have me. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So beautiful. Yeah. And also, um, with your Aquarius rising, her son would be in your first house, which is actually similar to me and my mom. She was my mom's Aquarius rising, but I'm a son in Aquarius. There's actually likely as she, maybe as your baby grows older, there will be actually a ton of identification between the two of you. I could be wrong, but that Aquarian streak might actually be a through line between the two of you. That's very comforting for me to hear because, you know, I'm a meditator and I'm, you know, a very relaxed person. I'm very slow, Mm. very quiet, Mm. introverted. And she is, from all accounts so far, coming up to two, the exact opposite of that. So it's been very growing for me to kind of show up for her at that like energetic level. If you know, I know it's toddlerhood is one thing, but even um, she goes to daycare a few days a week now. Mm -hmm. And they said to me, she's our most active, busiest, most curious child. So I was like, oh, but all the, you know, I used to have like beautiful Vedic chants on when she was little and burning the incense and she watches me meditate. I'm like, shouldn't she be like chilling? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's so interesting is with the moon and Aries, it almost implies that something she inherited from you is the ambition, the independence, the fire, which is so interesting because technically none of your big three are fire. Um, But yeah, anyways, it's just really curious to me because the moon says actually more about you than it does about her. But her perception of you, not necessarily the essence of you, right? Like just the individual relationship of how she perceives mom. And so she might just feel that you are a trailblazer to some extent. And by the way, your career, I think is a really good example of that. Um, So she might actually perceive you as being more fiery than your chart would imply. This could be a whole episode about... (laughs) I won't do that to the audience. But thank you, because that's actually just really nourishing for us to kick off, you know, for me to have that um, experience with you. I guess my first question is just like, tell us how you are. How are you? It's been three years. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, we met pre-pandemic times, so that's pretty wild. Um, And also when we met, I was only a year and a half into doing all of this full-time, being an astrologer, I mean. Um, but I'm coming into this doing well, but I just finished my Saturn return. And if no one's heard, I think we talked about that in the, in our last episode, maybe. Um, but Mm -hmm. yeah, if no one's heard of that before, it's basically just the, one of the biggest growing up periods that a chart goes through. Everyone goes through it. I'm by no means unique that I just went through this at 29 years old, but I think I'm coming into today's conversation and just like this phase of life feeling 
so deeply proud of the work that I've done in this book and all those things. And then simultaneously, really uncertain of where I'm going. And that's a very interesting, you know, two things to be holding up at the same time. Um, so yeah, feeling, feeling all, I don't know, feeling kind of all over the place, to be honest with you. <laughs> feeling all the things. Feeling all the things. What about you? Just to throw the question back at you. How have you been? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I think I'm feeling a decade on from that. Yes. <laughs> so I'm 37 mm-hmm. and the past two years with becoming a mother, that was not a quick or easy road for me. Mm-hmm. And what I experienced in, I guess, fertility and some sad losses and just the unknown of like, is this going to happen? Then it happening. So my kind of um, entry into motherhood at the same time, my own mum fell quite ill Mm. and and passed actually recently. It has been a landing for me. Like I, and in my work as Mm. well, like I finally, and you'll know this, like, I was really dancing with my role when we first spoke, yeah. just really was not fully accepting of what is more dharmic for yeah. me. And I've I've just landed, I feel like, in my essence, in my body, in my life, in my mm-hmm. beliefs. So I'm feeling whole, actually, for now. <laughs> I have two questions following up with that. One is I'm curious, what was your relationship like with your mom before she passed? Were you guys close? Was that a big, I mean, of course it's a big loss no matter what, but I'm just wondering what did that relationship mean to you? You know, we became, we were always close, but because of my childhood, I became very self-sufficient, very young. And so I moved into that very, which I know is such a natural thing of parenting the mm-hmm. parent. Cancer, son, cancer, moon. And that, <laughs> um, that deepened in the last two years of her mm-hmm. life where I really just started to accept my role yes. in that. And I had a lot of acceptance that um, it was not our story or within her capacity based on how she was raised and her marriage and all of those different factors for her to show up for me in the way that I know ultimately she wanted to. So there's a a lot of acceptance. Um, And ultimately before she passed, I feel like we got there, you know, and that was probably the sad part is there's nothing like having a sick loved one that sort of, of course, makes you prioritise spending more time with them and really understanding how rich that space is and how much they actually do have to teach us. Yeah. <laughs> that was there all along. So if anyone's listening and your mum's still with you, call your bloody mum. <laughs> and what's so, um, but yeah. what's so beautiful about it from an astrology standpoint is you. I believe she passed during your Jupiter return uh, if you were around the age of 36. Is that true? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I've turned 37 in July. Okay. So the reason why that's interesting is Jupiter returns are supposed to be benevolent and lucky and they bring in new things. But an interesting phenomenon that a lot of astrologers have witnessed is 
people that are important to us sometimes pass away during a Jupiter return. And how can those two things be true that we experience loss within an event that's supposed to be so uplifting and exciting? And what I always think, which is just my two cents, I don't think that this is a fact, but I think about when a specific person who's important in our life passes away during a Jupiter return, that they're when they pass to the other side, they're going to actually be a force in our life for abundance, a force for, you know, perhaps the ways in which you wanted to be supportive that maybe she wasn't totally (sighs) capable of doing in this life. Perhaps she represents something else on the other side. So take it for what it's worth, but it's really interesting to have an important parent pass during a Jupiter return versus a Saturn return because like I said, Jupiter is abundant and it's happy and it's joyous. So that's, what are your thoughts on that, if anything? Mm, Like, that's the truth. (laughs) Because I have actually, she passed in August. We're recording this on December 1 for anyone interested. Um, So it's, it's recent, but I've almost never felt closer to her presence than I do now. And for all of my own kind of spiritual growth in the last couple of years and the knowledge sort of base I've been exploring and studying and, you know, of course, ultimately trying to embody is really landing into she dropped her body but her consciousness remains and with that I can be with her anytime and I can just summon her, you know, and I can feel that it's it's very rich. And and then there's just the very natural signs that of course you hear about from other people Mm. and you're like, Oh, I wonder if that's true or not. Or, and then it happens to you and you're like, Oh, it's undeniable. The, the, cause when we were having a joke before she passed, she was like, I wonder if I can just come back unlimited times, like with signs and signals and things, or maybe you only get one opportunity to like give one person (laughs) a message. And, and I said to her, don't come to me then. Cause I'm all, I'll be all right. Like, you know, go to one of the girls, like my sisters or something, mm-hmm. don't use your kind of one shot on me. And what I've been kind of laughing about when I do feel her in the room is obviously it is unlimited because she has come quite yeah. a lot. Yes. <laughs> so this is kind of really, you know, not, and in different forms and different ways. Yeah. And of course it will be, you know, I had a really scary experience. She she passed of breast cancer that had spread to her liver and I was just trying to be really responsible. So I got my breast checked Mm. more or less straight after she passed. And I really should have given myself more space between those experiences. But of course they found a bloody lesion and I had to get a biopsy and ultimately it was all okay, but it was in the doctor's surgery waiting to get the results of the biopsy and her, one of her favorite songs came on and the band is not a band that you here on the radio. Not Taylor Swift or something. It was such a moment of, and I knew before I got to the, into the doctor's surgery, I was like, it's fine because she wouldn't play the song if something bad was coming, you know what I mean? So there's things, it's just, it is really undeniable when she's around and, um, and that's provided a lot of kind of, I guess, softness in the grief. I will say like less suffering. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, and she was ready, which was the other thing Such that a, a lot of people don't get the privilege of that. She was ready. I think to some extent we were ready. We had time to 
really digest mm. it and say everything we wanted to say and to be with her and that I am I don't even know how I would have coped with a sudden yeah. you know, death. We had a couple of great years of, you know, just being together. Mm-hmm. So so a big couple of years. And you, I mean, we're going to get into it, but <laughs> you've had quite the time in your satin return. Um, the first question I have for you is I think you'll agree one of the more vital topics for us to cover and to to cover first, and that is the Black Lives Matter movement. You immediately began using your platform and content to act in allyship. I wondered what your reflections are, I guess we're two and a bit years on from that time. What did you ultimately become aware of and awake to that you perhaps weren't within your work beforehand? I think the most pertinent thing for me was that there's so many different ways to understand astrology and to do predictions, right? So you can do it for a client and you can read Pluto and Capricorn as, hey, client, you know, you're having a disruption or a breaking down of your love life, let's say. And I think when... Uh, the George Floyd protest started, I was in the car and I had this moment where I was like, astrology is saying all of this of what we're experiencing. And it was not the first time, but it was the first time I felt compelled to write from the perspective of what these astrological phenomenons could say about this period of time. And it really opened up this crazy portal for me of how astrology is cyclical. And so actually, you don't just have to analyze the current you know, social political events. You can also reference past events to understand the current social political space. So an example being the Rodney King riots in the 90s, which was you know, its own eruption in social protesting. Uh, Saturn was in Aquarius during the same time as when the George Floyd protests began. So there's just really interesting repetition of patterns and kind of just like history, it feels like we never learn anything from it, unfortunately. But what I will say is, and I'm sure, I hope most people would agree, it was a huge awakening 2020 for so many people. And that was really the point of the Pluto and Saturn conjunction in Capricorn, which was the big astrological phenomenon at the time. And um, yeah, so long story short, I've just never looked at astrology the same. I think I just saw it in such a bigger scope because my scope prior to then was just client-based and feeling-based and therapy-based, not really social-political-based. Um and I still obviously straddle both worlds and I can, you know, view them from both vantage points. But yeah, that was pretty fascinating to me was for the first time thinking about what astrology says on a bigger scale about what we're trying to maybe accomplish as a human race. And it's tricky, it's complicated, it's not a linear thing, but it just got me really excited about building a different relationship with the spiritual practice and maybe using it as a guide to be able to talk about some of these really, really tricky topics that, you know, can, uh, yeah, just frankly be difficult to talk about, particularly in the United States. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that was kind of what was up for me at the time. 
Definitely. And I, I guess my build on that is that must ultimately feel very fulfilling. Like that must be an expanding, like if we think about like professional development as an astrologer, you know what I mean? Like that has to feel very rich. Very rich. And then also it's almost like opening Pandora's box in a way because you kind of begin to look at future transits in an excited way, in a very terrifying way of, you know, especially in the U.S., we're having questions of like, is there going to be a civil war? Like what, you know, who's going to get elected in 2024? What will happen with abortion rights? What will happen with LGBTQ plus rights? Like there are so many things that are on the table that by looking at history, like I was just referencing the the old astrology, you can get a bunch of ideas in your head that are in some ways inspiring. And then you can also can get into some future tripping and get into a little bit of foreboding. And uh, so for me, like one of the biggest lessons I've had to learn over the past couple of years is like, how far to predict into the future because you and I are humans just sitting at our laptops, you know, musing about what we think might happen. And no astrologer has a crystal ball, even though we have all these tools under our belt. So yeah, long story short, incredibly fulfilling. And then also like kind of became complicated for me of, of, uh, yeah, just kind of thinking too far into the future potentially with Mm. all the humanness that I have within me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. Makes me think about like it makes so much sense of this idea of like you can't forget what you've realized. Yeah. You, even on the days you try and pretend, you actually can't forget what you now know. But then in the knowing of that and participating in that, you're ripping yourself out of the present moment yeah. and you start to just live in the, I guess, some not exact fear-based state, but some level of anticipation for what's coming. And that's not what we want. Yeah. And that's, I think the beautiful and tough thing about spiritual practices, right? Is like, we're, they're almost like magic wands and we're kids at Hogwarts. And so it's just figuring out what the boundaries (laughs) are, right? And like, where, where is this tool helpful for me? And then when is it harmful to me? And when am I maybe overusing this tool? And then, you know, where is it actually helpful? So I find that actually astrology, I think is really the most helpful in hindsight, which is bizarre because it's the most famous for being predictive. Uh, But I think it's more impactful to be... So really when I was writing about what was going on with the George uh, Floyd protest, I wasn't actually predicting anything. I was just reflecting on hey, this is what's happening right now. And this also happened, you know, X, Y, Z years ago. Here are some themes and patterns. And um, so, yeah, long story short, I've been kind of obsessed with retroscopes versus horoscopes, which is like, if we Mm. can't predict the future, could we at least gain some knowledge from the past and understanding what the astrology of last year was, for example, now that you and I have lived through all of that, if that makes any sense. So, yeah. Yes. Um, one of the topics that I'm seeking to explore this season is kind of what I'm calling the wisdom and the work, mm. meaning the wisdom we explore and the work we commit to when we decide to develop a relationship with our essence mm. and our truth. You experienced what I can only kind of identify as that kind of dark night of the soul which I suppose is the Saturn return. return. I don't know whether, yeah, they're connected. Um, 
Can you just tell us more about the shape of the season you've, I think you're saying you've kind of come out of? What happened? Well, God knows what happened. I mean, honestly, um, I mean, I wrote about it, which I think is what you're referencing. And I have no other way to explain it, except in 2020, I sat down at my computer one day and couldn't write a thing. Like it was the story I had been churning out content, writing horoscopes. Like it was just second nature. It was like breathing up until that point. And all of a sudden it again, like a magic wand that you're waving, imagine the magic wand just stops and suddenly you're completely powerless over it working again. And um, this is one, I think the tough things about turning your spiritual practice into a business, into your livelihood. And you're like, and then even most importantly, your identity, yes. right? Like you're, when I meet people, they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm an astrologer. And so it was terrifying. And I think, uh, what happened for me is I was simultaneously had just signed a book deal. And so it was this really kind of convenient, inconvenient time to say to everyone, Hey, like, I'm, I'm not going to be making any content right now. I'm going to go write a book, which was true. And it wasn't true. What was true is yes, the book t- took up a bunch of time, but what wasn't true is what I wasn't saying. Cause I couldn't verbalize is for some reason, guys, I can't do my job anymore. And I have no idea why. And it sent me searching because I was like, this is my only tool that I have in my toolbox. Like astrology for me was like learning a language that I had known by heart in a past life or something. So it was just so natural, innate and intuitive. And all of a sudden that thing stopped. Like the channel changed and I couldn't change the channel back. And I think what's really interesting is there is tons of denial, all the stages of grief, denial, tried to sit down on the computer, tried to write anyways, even though I know that it wasn't intuitive or natural. I tried to keep doing client readings, which by the way, were the one thing that was kind of okay during that phase of time because a one-on-one connection is kind of different. And so long story short is it sent me searching for like, who was I before I discovered astrology? And and who am I if I'm not Mm. defining, if I'm not like my entire lens of how I understood the world was astrology. What does life look like if you don't have that lens anymore? If those glasses were essentially kind of stolen from you to some extent or another. And it allowed me to write a book that I don't think I would have ever written otherwise. And it also allowed me, I think, to do a lot of things that I was putting off or denying within my personal life. Um, and it was an awakening for certain, but it was a huge loss of identity. And you said like, I think you're out of it now. I don't really think I'm out of it. I feel like for me, my Saturn return, which is how I have described it to some clients. Um, but for me, for some people, it's more extreme than others. For me, it was like my, my entire infrastructure of my psyche got torn down. And now Now, what's beautiful is I still love astrology. I think I have such a... That relationship didn't end. It was able to come back into the picture. But I think what's shifted is like, I can't use it the same way that I used to. It's almost like that never healed. And I think that that's by design. I think that like the universe, for whatever reason, needs me to kind of grow and evolve like all of us do, by the way. We can't do the same trick for the rest of our lives. Um, So yeah, frankly, it's been probably the hardest two years of my life. And 
And that's really interesting considering that I think on paper, nothing difficult happened, if that makes any sense. It was mostly mm-hmm. internally. The- An internal experience. Exactly. So it sounds like, you know, if we think about like the play and these kind of textured storylines of our lives and is there a, an evolving role for you as an astrologer yeah. that it needed to be ripped away in order for you to kind of make contact with? Because that's the thing about complacency, isn't it, is without that particular cosmic weather, you probably could have just kept going, you know what sure. I mean, and just kept doing the thing. Sure. But sometimes we need to kind of lose it all, don't we, to, to reestablish. I wondered in that time given, you know, your love for astrology, it didn't leave you, but it obviously dimmed. What key practice or wisdom, what, what, what did feel like a light then? Like what were you drawn into? Nature became a huge thing as maybe, I hope that doesn't sound too cheesy, but yeah, nature became a really interesting experience for me of noticing patterns and uh, rhythms and noticing birds and their, I, I just felt, I know the way to explain it, except I think I was just a really heady person b- before. I think I was just someone who give me a computer and I'll tell you anything. And then all of a sudden it was like, cause here's, what's really interesting is the earliest astrologers were astronomers and vice versa. And so it's so interesting is astrology originally was a practice of observation, but since I'm, mm. you know, born in, I was born in 1993, like astrologers learn via the internet and you learn via books and you learn via apps and you learn via websites. So like, there's no such thing really as learning by observing, I think, in astrology in the modern age. And and maybe, by the way, I'm sure there are some people who do, but I think in general, the fastest way road towards mm-hmm. learning this subject is online. And I just feel like all of a sudden I was asked to like experience astrology rather than just study it. And so another interesting thing is speaking of nature, like looking at the moon and not knowing what the sign is and not knowing, but noticing like, oh yeah, that's an eclipse. Like I don't even need to know. I don't need to look at a watch and know it's an eclipse. It's so obvious that it's an eclipse physically. And then the other crazy things around like the past couple of years has been having the most intense flood of emotions and feeling all these feelings and noticing everyone else's. And then a friend saying, well, it's an eclipse today. Like in the sense I, I went, I'm not following the transit. So I didn't know. So there's just been experiencing astrology has been pretty radical for me. And then secondly, I developed a tarot practice, which I didn't have before. And that's a really interesting spiritual practice because I think astrology of all the spiritual practices is the most mathematical. It's the nearest to science that you can get of the spiritual practices, I think. And so tarot was actually something I used to be kind of put off by because I was like, what, you just draw a card? Like there's no like there's no system behind that. Like that's just blind luck or something like that. And so I think it's just been a huge practice of like learning to believe that everything has meaning and not question myself so much. I don't know if I told you this last time I was raised by scientists. And so I was, I I think you may have, or I knew that about you. Yeah. yeah. And so I think I was just raised in a culture of like, if there is no facts behind it, it doesn't exist. Uh, so it was a huge couple of years of being like, it's okay, Nadine, that this doesn't make sense if it feels real to you and if it feels like it's happening. So I don't know if that answers your question, mm. but that that was the experience for me. 
Mm, it does. And I actually referenced one of our speakers inside my professional development space in another episode recently, but it just feels so true to share it again. Um, I think I just want to keep saying her name too, because she's so vital in her, her voice and keeping her quite loud. Her name's Eleanor Bancroft. Mm. And part of what she was teaching us was um, just how available nature is to mm. us you know, she, and she's an Indigenous woman, we can cultivate a very true relationship with the land and with the elements and that there is wisdom in the water and yeah. on, in the leaves. And if only we can stop and pay attention and, you know, to think about <clears throat> that kind of like object awareness or object consciousness is everything is living you know, and on one level you hear that and you're like, shush, like what? And then on another level you're like, well, yeah, because we all came from the same thing, yeah. something, and so I can look at a tree or I can look at the moon and I can ask the moon, what's it like to be you? Yeah. And then you can start to feel moon consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, like, but but what does that take, I think, something like what you've been through in a way because you're kind of pulled into a pause. Mm. You kind of, you have, it has, I think it has to be that threshold of like I was there and now I'm here and now I'm trying to find what's here for me and so I'm listening and I'm observing. Yeah. But I just think that's so beautiful because it is available to all of us but we're so fucking busy. (laughs) We're so busy. Another thing I was thinking as you were saying that, is um I so I moved away from New York. Um, guess what? I moved a yes. I moved a month before the pandemic started, and all my friends go. Of course, the astrologer wow. moved out of New York, and I was like, no, I did not plan for this to happen. But one of the interesting things is that I ended up moving to rural Maine of all places, so like drastically different than New York City. And recently, I'm I went back to New York for two weeks. And I realized it's such a logical place to be an astrologer because if you want to talk about channeling people's emotions and getting the pulse of what people are feeling, live in a city where you're basically crammed up against other people. And what's so interesting is being out of that environment. It's not that you're not tuned in to other people and what they're experiencing, but there's more room to hear yourself. And what I realized is I hadn't heard myself maybe ever, but certainly not in a very long time. And what I noticed is I'm more afraid of the forest. I'm more afraid of open space. I'm more afraid of the ocean than I am being in a very, very crowded city around a bunch of people. So for me, it was a really big adventure out of my comfort zone to remove myself from what was my comfort zone and what kept me really distracted. And I realized like, I was just afraid of the fact that nature sees you a hundred percent and nature doesn't give a F what you're doing on Instagram and doesn't care what you're wearing that day. <laughs> yes. Right. And like, that was uh, really humbling, but also one of the most beautiful experiences to be like, this thing doesn't give a shit about who I think I am. It just knows who I am. If that makes any sense. So that's what I was thinking when you were describing that. Mm. And maybe also... It's nature's trying to show me that I'm it. Show me to myself, reveal me to Mm -hmm. me. 
Um, as much as you're comfortable to talk about it, what did you, who did you meet in you in that time? Like what had you been suppressing or perhaps condemning um, that sort of rose up to the surface? So many things, but I think the one that might be the most, not relatable, but maybe, in, I don't know, the thing that I think I feel like is the most notable to me at least is that um, I met the part of me that doesn't want to read people. And it's a really, really beautiful gift to be able to do chart readings for people But I think what I didn't notice for myself was that there was a part of me that just wanted to be with people and not have to analyze or understand or, um, and I realized it was a trick I'd been doing since I was a kid way before I ever learned how to read a birth chart. I was just like, how do you understand someone so that they can't harm you? And most importantly, in a codependent way so that you become vital to them and important and they feel like you have all the answers to their life. And in a way, you know, that's big. Yeah. And you know, jobs are complicated, right? So it's not like that was all of my motivation for becoming an astrologer. But I think that there was an inner child that was like, as long as I can read people as best as humanly possible, I'll never be vulnerable. I'll never be seen, by the way, because really what being an astrologer is, is being a mirror to other people. And that's beautiful. I still love doing readings. But I think the part that I met was the part of me that was like, but I want to be seen by you and I want you to read me and I want you to like me even if I don't want to do this thing anymore. So I think that was the most terrifying piece of it was uh, just kind of saying you could just exist and maybe just because you can read people, do you want to? And do you think you add value even if you can't do that anymore? And what relationships would still stand? And, you know, all those questions are absolutely terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? Does that mean I think It's like, um, it's just like therapy without the therapist. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, and it's probably like you could spend a lot of money trying to get to that place because therapy is so relevant and I have a, you know, beautiful relationship with mine and there's a place for that, but there's also a place for the space of just letting it arrive, you know, on its own time in its own way and without facilitation. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to me about your evolving, your now evolving relationship with your body. And I suppose how much of the story you were telling yourself about how you had to look was kind of New York dependent Mm -hmm. versus moving to a place that I'm sure is much more diverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I honestly think gaining weight was the most epic thing I've ever done. And uh, for me, it was like life-saving and uh, not even really from a physical standpoint, like I wasn't going to die from that, but I just mean starving yourself physically for me, at least was starving my everything. It was starving my desires. It was starving my self-perception. It was starving my relationships. Like there was just so many elements to that. And, uh, New York dependent. Yes. And no, I think it was the perfect city to be lost in that type of disorder. And, um, but at the same time, I think it probably would have followed me anywhere. I think, um, 
But I think the biggest thing that I realized was like, how can you truly support others if you feel like you're not worth nourishing yourself? If you're, if your entire value system for yourself is based on the weight on a scale or the way that you fit a certain clothing number, it, it's amazing how much I didn't realize how I couldn't be that supportive of other people. I thought that I was, I thought it was available to that. But once I started nourishing myself, suddenly there was so much more room to be able to be available to people on so many different levels. And yeah, it's hard to articulate, but honestly, I feel like I woke up for the first time because really I'd had an eating disorder since I was 16. So that was about a decade of my life. And it obviously changed shapes and it wasn't the same the entire time. But that desire to be an unnatural body size was there. And I'm sure it is for many women, unfortunately, because I think we're just swimming in that water. But yeah, for me, um, there's my favorite quote is now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And I think that there's just so much that I've been thinking about around like, rather than walking into a room and thinking, you know, how can I, how can I look a certain way or, you know, be perceived a certain way? It's like, why don't you just listen to people talk? And why don't you just be really present for someone? And maybe that is a much better offering than anything physical that you could bring to the room. But again, like, especially with women, we're taught from such a young age that our currency is our appearance and that, you know, that's such a vital, important piece of what we offer to society. And I really feel like it's such a trap. I really think it stops us from being activists, from being feminists, from being, you know, uh, really a lot of different things. I think dieting is one of the most distracting tools that white supremacy has to keep women stuck. And again, I don't want to speak Mm. for everyone. I just really want to speak for myself. I think it was really limiting for me to spend that much of my life thinking about that. Not sure if I answered your question because I I got a little bit lost there, but yeah. Oh, you are more than answering (laughs) the question. It's just, it's so valuable. And I know, of course, landing with me, it's going to be landing with so many people listening, I think even people that haven't really acknowledged that for themselves before. And, you know, when you were talking about kind of being in the room post, I suppose post eating disorder, if that is a thing, um, it makes me think a lot about we enter rooms and really is the question we should be asking ourselves, what is the quality of me that is required here? you know, and we bring that, but so often we're not doing that. We're walking in and we're doing that very natural tribal thing of scanning the room, understanding our relevance in the room, how we look in the room, how we smell in the room, how we're going to sound in the room. So I just think what you've shared is really such a gift. And I know not something that you necessarily will always feel compelled to talk about. So I do appreciate you giving that to us for sure. Um, just really valuable. And one little share from me is really understanding the privilege of not only falling pregnant and for me, particularly holding a pregnancy, but giving birth. Mm. I never, ever thought about how it would change my relationship with my Mm. body. I just so focused on getting the baby and it has been for me, I know not true for everyone, one of the most physically freeing things Mm -hmm. 
because I immediately realized after I gave birth that I am that life force. And so the respect for this body just went, whoa. Like I look at her now, I'm like, every little hair on your head, I grew it. (laughs) Your toenail, I grew it. Your arm, I grew it. You know, and so it was a really soft postpartum time for me because I was just in full reference to the physical of like, this is insane. How do we do this? We, (laughs) we grow humans inside of ourselves and they come out and they're, you know, like, so any kind of, you know, whatever the stretch marks, Mm -hmm. the, the markers of that experience, I'm like, I look at them like, Yeah. yeah beautiful, you know, whereas before it was like, what's that yes. thing there? I've got to get rid of that, got to laser that off or totally. <laughs> get that removed totally. or, you know. Um, my next question for you is about your book, <laughs> <laughs> Magic Days, um, which I think we can now kind of acknowledge was birthed during a bit of a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Um. So I want to know, what does the book represent to you now? Uh, I feel like one of the biggest things that I've been blown away by is I can, I just get the feeling that I'll be proud of this for the rest of my life. And let me explain why, because you, you kind of brought this up in the pre, um, before we started recording, but um, this was not the book that I signed on to write. So we were just going to do an updated birthday book. If no one's heard of that before, it's this book, I believe that was written in the 80s. And it's a, you know a big bestseller. And it's essentially um, 800 pages where you could open to your birthday and read a bit about your personality based on spiritual practices. And I was stoked to do that because I thought, God, an updated birthday book, like that sounds like a beast of a project. I would love to do that. And I was literally, Allison, six months into... So I had a year to write it. I was six months in. This is an 800-page book. So you could imagine six months is a lot of time to waste. And I had already written, I think, a month of this old style of writing, which was just personality readings for each day of the year. And I got the most intuitive... Um, no, you're writing this book wrong. And it was a very kind of mischievous, uh, strong energy that was coming that I'd never engaged with before. My astrology channel was such a different energy. This energy was like, we're going to shake shit up. Like we're going to do this differently. (laughs) And, um, it made me break a lot of rules for, for example, like typically how you do numerology, let's say it's January 21st, your baby's birthday, you would do one plus two plus three to get the number. And instead I was like, I think this thing is telling me it's one plus 21, which in many cases gives you a different number. So there's just left and right. This book wanted things to be done differently. And the biggest message that came through was this is definitely not a personality book. This is a book about journeys. And so the whole, yeah, I had to go to my publisher like six months in and be like, Hey, everything we wrote is wrong. 
And I, oh my God, wow. I, know, I really like to write it this way. <laughs> and that's why I actually feel deeply, deeply connected to my editor, Meg, and frankly, Penguin Random House in general, is that they didn't miss a beat. They were kind of like, yeah, that sounds like a way better idea and sounds actually original and like that we haven't done that before. And so huge credit to them for not being like, no, but we decided that it was going to be this thing. So long-winded way of saying what the book means to me, outside of just like exactly what the book is, on a spiritual level for me, it means choosing to do the true thing rather than the thing that would have been easier (laughs) and like choosing to to be authentic to myself versus being people-pleasing, which is absolutely one of my biggest character defects um, or survival mechanisms that I had growing up. And so, yeah, I think I'll be proud of it for the rest of my life because I know it would have been an easier route to just do what I had been doing before. And to me, when I, when I live with the book, I just feel like I, I feel like it does add value. And I think it's a different perspective on these spiritual practices. And so I'm just so proud that, 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 I can't even really take credit for it. I'm just so happy that that voice was so loud that it was almost, there was no other choice except to, to kind of shift directions. (laughs) (laughs) Is this how we would identify like a very tangible example? Is tangible the right word? Um, of what it means to create through source energy of, of that we truly are, no idea is ours, if we can really tap into that channeled creativity, we're really just the vessel that receives the download, does the job. Yes. Yeah. And that was really humbling for me because I, I'd been an astrologer for for three or four years professionally at that point. And I have to tell you, I didn't really see my job that way. I was kind of like, no, I'm doing this thing. You know what I mean? And um, through the process of that breakdown, I was describing around sitting at the computer and getting nothing. That's when I realized, oh, this wasn't me. This was this thing. And this thing has chosen to go elsewhere and I can't do a damn thing about it. And so with with this book, I feel like I was, I'm so happy that experience happened because I think I would have tried to control the narrative prior to that experience. I would have been like, no book, don't give a shit what you want. I, the publisher likes this. People are going to like this. We're writing the birthday book. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, for me, this was the loudest example. I felt like I was co-conspirating with a, a greater force the entire time. But here's the interesting thing is, the one thing I have to say is, I think it's a myth for me, this idea of if you're channeling, it should be flow and ease and harmony the entire time. Uh. I think it depends on who you're wrestling with. And I think it depends on what you're channeling. Because for me, that wasn't the case for the writing experience. Um, It felt like... I wanted to ask you about this. So I'm glad you're talking about it because we romanticize the idea of writing a book. No. (laughs) For me... The conception of the thing in the six month mark, that was easy. It was only socially scary to like have that conversation, but the grueling nature of writing a book, oh my God, first of all, it is a 
process for introverts, in my opinion, just because you, it's not even like you could go work at a coffee shop. You have to work in complete and utter silence, or at least that was my experience of writing because it's so concentrated. And then another thing is it's so disciplined. So it's especially- well, Especially for, for 800 pages. Like pages. this book, I for anyone listening, like it is a, it is a masterpiece. It's so heavy and- thick and big. And I'm flicking through it. And as a writer, I was like, how did she, like how many pages a day? Do you know what I mean? You would have had to have almost yeah. been on a page deadline. And and I was, and that's exactly how I did it. And um, I actually had a really good friend and she had written a book. And what she said to me is you just gotta, um, there's this famous book called, uh, bird by bird or something. And it's kind of like a, a advice book around writing. And it's just the idea of you just have to sit down and write it and, and it's okay if it's crap and just, you gotta, you, yeah. So that was kind of my methodology is I was like, I'm going to finish three pages. It's okay if they're shitty and I have to do tons of rewriting later. I just need to accomplish that. It's, it's, getting something on the page because what's interesting is this book versus how I used to write horoscopes is everything I treated like it was like, you know, a masterpiece where I was like, you know, I'm not going to write anything unless it's exceptional. And this was instead like, no, you just have 800 pages and you can make it exceptional through the editing process. It doesn't need to be perfect right off the bat because it's too large of a scale to be that. For every single page to be to feel true. You know what I mean? Yes. Like that's exactly. a pretty cool order. What was to the order. editing experience like in that, you know, for anyone who writes, um, it's a very personal experience. It's very hard to have our writing critiqued. And for somebody who has, let's be honest, sales in mind and an audience in mind, and a really experienced expert idea of how it needs to read in order for people to buy the thing. This is hard because it's like the commercialization of our creativity in a way. How did you receive edits? Was there a period of you're like, you're wrong, or we just like go for it? So again, this is where everything about the book was hard except this piece that you're referencing. I don't know if it was just that me and my editor were so in sync, but she had very little creative edits and a lot of structural ideas because yes, the book's 800 pages, but it follows a system because mm. all of these pages have to follow some type of order because they're written for the same purpose, if that makes any sense. So she had a lot of constructive feedback of like, this is how the page this is the information we need to have on the page. And that was incredibly helpful because to your point, she's a master in that realm, which is like, what really would people want to receive from this book? But what I was the most nervous about was my voice. I was so worried about it getting cut down or it being altered or her hating my voice, for example, like of her just being like, I just don't like this because... I used to be a graphic designer and I've had creative directors who just don't like my style and there's nothing you can change about that. And so they're just constantly hammering into that they don't like what you're doing. That was just not my experience with my editor. So I think that was incredibly lucky. And then the last thing that I will say is I just feel like um, the thing that I'm the most amazed by was that they were on board to change the concept, which I know you and I have already discussed. 
But them saying yay to that made me feel like any edit that they gave me, I could receive because they were so willing to work to go with there me. With you. Like, yeah. So it made me trust them. It made me be like, cool, these people are willing to work in integrity. They they want to write the book that wants to be written. And so, yeah, when it came to the actual editing process, I think I was also just very primed to be open-minded. Mm. So the book you've said is really about journeys. I wondered if you could talk to us about what are your hopes for how we engage with the book and use the book, like in your wildest, highest dreams? Um, what does the book mean to us? Question. I love that question so much. So I will tell everyone, which I wish I could say more frequently, but you're giving me the best opportunity. It, the book should not hit you like a, a personality reading does. So you won't open to your birthday, I imagine, and be like, oh my God, that's so me. I think you'll open to your journey and either think, oh, that sucks. That's so annoying that that's my journey. Or you might be in a different place in life and you might be like, yeah, that's absolutely some of the lessons I've been learning in life. Or you might be really far along and be like, been there, done that. I've already, you know, you know, totally conquered this journey of, of my life. And so that's my first thing I will say is do not expect to have a thousand percent identification with it like you would a personality reading. And then the second thing, which I think is the most fun piece is like, I would love it if you read it as if you're the hero of your own story. And I'm just telling you of the epic kind of mythic journey that you're going to go on in this lifetime. And these are spiritual forces you can choose to dance with but you don't have to. Nothing in this book is predictive. Everything about this book is just kind of like, these are things you could co-conspire with in this lifetime to make your journey really spiritually aligned. No sweat if you don't want to do that. You can ignore these guys and tell them to F off, right? And so that's kind of my hope is just remembering like, we get so bogged down in the minutia of our lives and we're like, God, I just work in tech or God, I just work a sales job. And like my, you know, I just don't think my life's interesting. And I hope the book reminds you that like you're a spiritual person and thus your life is incredibly interesting. And just like you and I were just talking about the beginning, like I hope it makes you notice some of these spiritual forces that might be around you all the time, but you might be too busy to engage with or to have conversations with. And what I'm the most excited about is the idea of a person reading this and being like, eh, I don't know. And then like it kind of then just kind of noticing small things in their life and being like, oh, mm, so yeah. Because you kind of like you facilitate that kind of seed awareness, don't you, of like you just plant yes. that little dusting in and yes. then we start to have those moments of real resonance. I'll share with you when I received the book, I'm so grateful I got a press copy. I was like, yeah, all the so way to cool. Australia. I was like, thank you, I Christina. I didn't think yes. she would want to post one all the way over, but she did. Um, when I opened mine, I had the, my experience was, of course, I know, <laughs> because mine is um, grief. And I received the book not long after my mum passed. Uh, but deeper than that, my biggest, um, I suppose, story attachment in this lifetime is fear of loss. Mm. And like almost like at one point a hypervigilance around protecting my husband every day, making sure that everything was set up in a certain way that so he wouldn't die. And then the first really, the 18, first 18 months of motherhood, the same with my baby is I had like this compulsive behavior where I had to control and organize things to a point where I would know she's breathing, she's safe. 
Mm. I've always felt this feeling of like, I'm going to have these big losses. And so I, someone once said to me, she was like an energy reader. And she said to me, who are you grieving? And at that time, no one had died. And I said, oh, no one's died. She said, no, they're still alive. But you're grieving them in anticipation. And this is my entire fucking existence where I'm like, less so these days, but there's still definitely days where I feel that like it's coming, you know? And so when I opened my page, I was like, (laughs) (laughs) the old grief. I love that. It felt very true. Um, With the emerging founders I coach within my work, I talk a lot about taking responsibility for what we're creating. And I wondered what your thoughts were about that and how are you thinking about your creative footprint today? And I suppose it's going to be different to what you would have said to me two years ago. Absolutely. (laughs) I also kind of want you to answer that in return, um, but I will, I will answer it first. Um, Yeah. So this has been so interesting. I, I think the channel change and also my relationship to social media really changed and my relationship to horoscopes change and my relationship to, you know, so many things change. And I think what's been so crazy difficult about the past two years is it felt like you have to make a choice. Are you going to live in integrity or are you going to keep moving a business along because that's what you were supposed to do? I can't tell you how many people gave me advice and it was well-meaning advice, but of like, are you kidding? You have X amount of followers oh, on Instagram. And <laughs> exactly. And you're you're gonna give up that, or you're like, you're not going to try and continue to build that thing. And that what I kept feeling was I was like, but it would die if I if I did do that. Like I won't wouldn't grow it. It would just cease to be what it was. And I want to honor what that thing was at the time, which um like you're saying, maybe two years ago it would have been really different. And yeah, it was. It was just, you know, we all go through really fruitful periods of productivity and feeling like you just are pouring out with energy. And I think what's been really difficult is I keep wanting to make content. I keep having that very human desire to be like, God, shouldn't I be more present here? And shouldn't I be like, you know, whatever? And I keep just saying to myself, like, but that's not growth. And also most importantly, why would you want to take up people's attention if you don't have anything important to say Mm -hmm. and maybe just wait for the rain to come? And if it doesn't come, that's okay. And, uh, cause I, I feel like I've been able to create some things within the past two years that I'm really proud of, but it's like once in a blue moon, (laughs) which I feel like I actually have something to say. And so I guess to answer your questions, I just have been thinking a lot about the fact that in this attention economy, we're kind of taught your business will fail if you're not constantly reminding people that you're around. And I think I'm, I, I, it could be a huge failure, but I just have this feeling of like, obligation to what the practice was and what the practice is. And then most importantly, my relationship with the people that have engaged with my work in the past of like, I don't want to give them empty calories. You know what I mean? Like I I want to engage with them in a really sincere and honest way. And if that's bad business practices, I'm fine with that. (laughs) So I guess that's kind of what I've been thinking about is like just chasing. I'm sure there will be a time in my life where I can be maybe producing more, 
but I don't know I have total control over that and nor do I really want to have total control over that because that would mean I wasn't channeling something Mm -hmm. or I wasn't being honest or something but man would my partner tell you how much I've cried about this because it's terrifying I mean we literally you can't open your phone without feeling like you're not doing something with your life or something or you're you're failing or you're you know what I'm saying so I think well, that's been or that you're especially done. with the following of your size that you're not capitalizing on the opportunity capitalism yeah. <laughs> Literally. you know it's it runs so deep yeah. it's such a shedding for us mm-hmm. and that's really what I've been thinking about is um my desire to be in my life to be a present parent, to show up in my marriage and to bring a soft, the softer parts of me to my relationship and my other relationships because I traditionally am the person who solves the problems. I'm the one you come to and I tell you what to do. And yeah. much the same as what you were saying before is I just want to show up as me, like with my yeah. stuff too, <laughs> and feel that level of... Um, acceptance that if I don't coach you in this moment, that you're not going to leave this interaction with me being like, she didn't do the thing. And therefore that felt like an unfulfilling exchange. Like, can I just be small self Allison? You know what I mean? Like not having to respond to the highest value of every fucking moment (laughs) Um, and how that's flowing into my work and my service and who I serve is I do want to be an example of what it means to like cultivate a really rich life um, and have work that sustains that and funds that, not that my life is my work. And so what that's meant is saying no, like you, to a lot of things that everyone told me to say yes to, especially deals. I think that's the big one. It's the money Mm -hmm. that I know there's a lot of, oh my gosh, if I took that, we'd be secure for this amount of time and I'd be able to put money mm-hmm. in our savings and my, you know, my baby would be looked after in the future. But what would that require of me? And how yeah. much of my my integrity would I have to sort of compromise to, to actually do it? So growing something, you know, how I think about thoughtful scale, mm. conscious scale, whatever, being yeah. slow and deliberate. Yeah. But teaching other people that it's okay to do that too. And and just hopefully, like I haven't got it all figured out, but being a bit of a light in the corner yeah. going, I'm doing it differently over here. And if you want my yeah. help, then then I've created a space for you to 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 walk this path path with me. And I want you to know I'm I'm so on it. <laughs> like I'm yes. not on the other side saying yes. this is the way. I'm saying we need to more of us here. Mm-hmm. to rewrite the story of what it means to be quote unquote successful and that we won't sacrifice our health and our relationships and yeah. all in the pursuit of something that actually doesn't um, support, especially for women, the very kind of intrinsic cycles of our lives. Like, especially yeah. when you think about, I mean, in the US, I just cannot even wrap my head around how early women have to go back to work after having a baby. I know, Matt, we was Just the way it's set up. I mean, thankfully, we, for the most part, depending on where you work, will get 12 months of leave, not paid, 
Um, but you get 16 weeks sort of minimum wage pay from the government and then most employers mm. will pay you at least eight weeks. Wow. There's also parental leave, so your partner gets paid leave. But we can take a year out of our job and our role is held. A year. Wow. Wow. Wow, You know, wow, wow. but the system, and we can sort of acknowledge that as capitalism, the economic system where we're living within does not support us living a full and express life. It it asks us to choose. You make such an interesting point because it's kind of full circle. Like that's astrology. It's you because I because whenever I think about women's cycles, I think about moon cycles and I think about astrology. And so what I was just thinking when you're describing that is like there will just be you know seasons and so one of the things I wanted to say in tandem to what I was describing is there's nothing wrong with another astrologer producing tons of content right now. If I'm not that saying feels that's true. bad. Right. So I think what's interesting is like we will all hope like I guess what I'm what I've been interested in is like society will tell me stay the same, stay consistent, keep growth. Growth should be linear, right? And I think what's what's interesting is I'm in a quiet season and that's completely terrifying, but also completely okay. And that is so cool because what's interesting is then there are other people in the space that I'm working in who are in a big growth season. And it's important for for myself who doesn't have a ton to say right now to say like, let them to take up it. that space <laughs> on your phone. Yeah, exactly. So it's astrology. We're all going through cycles at different mm. phases and at different times. And what I'm hearing is you are really consciously choosing the season and accepting the season. You're aware of the season. And of course, there's days where you're like, oh, (laughs) what am I doing? You know? But for the most part, I think what I'm hearing is a lot of freedom in the acceptance of just what simply is. Um, This is so hard. (laughs) hard. Um, Before I let you go, I have um, two more questions for you. The first one is I feel like I can't leave an honest conversation with you without giving people a bit of a read on 2023. Sure. So I just wondered if you could share with us, like, what's the shape of next year? So remember, everyone, as I'm describing this, is just my hot take on it. I'm sure other astrologers will have different perspectives, and I recommend hearing a bunch of different perspectives. But my feeling about it is that there is a ton of stagnation in 2021 and 2022. And what um, I've been feeling from all my clients, and when I've been looking at the astrology with Uranus and Saturn, it's kind of been like a stalemate. And I feel like all of us, know where we want to go next. I think a lot of us are are bubbling up on some new dream of ours or some new concept. And it's that thing where we say to our friend, I have this crazy idea, but I think I want to like move to this other country. And 2021 and 2022 has kind of been this vibe of, I know that's what I want to do, but it's quite literally impossible for me to do it. My hands are tied behind my back. I can't move. And so I think my vibe for 2023 is... It's the first time in a long time we get some opportunity to really pursue our dreams and really begin to take a leap of faith. So I think that's like my biggest phrase for 2023 is taking a leap of faith on whatever the dream is that you've been sitting on for way too long. And if there's a big change you need to make in your relationships or in your career or in your whatever, and, and 
this would be the time. I think it would be a really, really great year for people to have a case of not the fuck it's, but a case of kind of like life's too short type of vibe. And I got to go do this now. And maybe the astrology will finally open up. So where our hands are not tied behind our back and we can actually have some movement in our lives. Um, And will it come with its troubles? Certainly. I don't think it's just like a breeze all of 2023. But I think my mentality going into the year is going to be like, if not now, when? Um, So I would love for other people to be thinking about what their thing is that they've been sitting on. Mm. And so perhaps what have we been, what, what, what is our knowing that we've been perhaps too scared to really step into and that this might be the time to to leap, see where we land. And since Saturn's moving into Pisces, I think another tough thing is it's okay if your idea or your dream is quote unquote irrational. And it's okay if you have this idea where you're like, oh my God, no way in hell would I be able to pull that off? I think it's kind of a year of, could you take your dreams more seriously? And no, maybe they won't manifest exactly how you wish that they would, but maybe if you took them seriously enough to pursue them, then you might realize what the actual thing is going to become. And so I just also want to recommend to people like, please pursue the thing that you think is quote unquote insane, or that you think is, of course, do it in a measured, healthy way. You know, you don't need to like, totally disrupt your whole life. But I think taking a leap of faith is absolutely the calling Mm. from my vantage point. That's really empowering. (laughs) And what I want to add to that is this real kind of um, acknowledgement that we've become very outcome orientated as a society. And what it makes me think about is, can we move back into the the joy of the process and knowing that the process is it. The dream is the carrot that moves us into action. But actually what's here for us is not what's at the end. It's the fucking story along the way. And to your point on allowing it to change shape, it will. But that's the point is because you're going to get more information after you've leaped and landed. Yes. You know? That's so profound. Yeah. Yeah. What would you do? Yeah, exactly. What's the dream you would do if it never, you never got any fruits from your labor, but it was just so enticing and so exciting to you that just doing it alone would be amazing. That's such a good point. Mm. I could talk to you for hours. (laughs) Um, I have a final question for you, which you may or may not remember from our first chat, but it has evolved as the podcast has evolved. Uh So the first time we sat down or we connected online, um, I asked you who you were when you were sitting in your true self. And now my kind of evolved question is when you're sitting in your true self, how do you define success? Speaking of, I feel like I could sit on that question for years. Um, I hope this doesn't sound lame, but I was just thinking like, I don't know why this keeps coming to mind, but like uh, happy Uh, because I think that I, I feel like I have to add like an explainer. I think that when I'm not in my most truthful self, I think that uh, I can tend to be coming from a place of wanting to say the right thing and even, yeah, like not being totally honest. And I feel like 
uh, for me, what joy ends up equating to is not like, oh my God, I'm dancing and I'm so happy and all those things, but actually just, I said the, what felt authentic to me. So coming from just a root source of what is like the joy of me actually think, even if people may hate it and disagree with it and not like it, um, so random, but I just thought, yeah, like happy and, and coming from a joyful place. That's beautiful. <laughs> what, what else about do you? Want? Do you have any what else do you want? Um, yes. And of course, as we know, just always sitting in it and allowing it to evolve as my kind of my own self and state expands. Right now, my when I'm sitting in my true self, my definition of success is presence. Mm. And that for me has been life changing (laughs) of just allowing myself to feel into the richness of the moment, not every day, all the time, but more regular glimpses of it. That to me is success when I have, when the shape of my life is conducive to me being able to do that. Um, And that's kind of what I'm really kind of claiming and demanding for myself now is trying to structure my work in a way that allows me to live. This has been beautiful. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I need to come to Maine and we need to have a cup of tea is my vibe. (laughs) And I never say that. I just feel like we need like a fireplace. I'm getting this vibe. And we need hours. And we just need need open-ended time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One day. (laughs) One day, for sure. Thank you for spending just over an hour with me and us. You are a crowd favorite, so everyone's going to be thrilled (laughs) that you're back. And for anyone who, you know, of course I'll do all the linkies in the show notes, but the book, I mean it. And I know when we started, Nadine was like, you don't don't have to talk about the book. I'm like, we're talking about the book. And (laughs) I think for for ourselves, beautiful, but also for the people we love, Mm. you know, it's a real... Um, expander that the experience mm-hmm. of the book for anyone who may need a little help in hand, you know, waking up to that part yeah. of them for anyone in your life in your life that I think you think could um, could use something that feels a little bit more tactile. Yeah, I think it could be lovely. So, a big congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Wait before you go. An invitation. Nadine landed something quite significant just now, that the cosmic weather conditions are ripe for leaping into the thing, the chapter or the dream you've been holding perhaps quite tightly to your chest. This is where I come in to help you on your way. Transitions and leaps into the unknown are my specialty. My invitation is to write to me and tell me what you need to feel safe in the action you're desiring to take in your life or your career. My email address is support at getoffline.co. I will be answering every single email that comes in and sharing with you how I can help. One last thing. 
If you know someone who would benefit from listening to this episode, please consider sharing it with them. 